Okay, so uh, for the chapter, I, I wanted to look at the question about the um, usefulness of the term Buddhist nationalism and what it can mean. And basically, uh, my uh, thesis is this, is that the term is insufficient if it's not used with further qualification. Uh, so, and this is because I think there's more than one type of Buddhist nationalism. Um, the, the discourse has been used in uh, different ways throughout history, but also at the same time as well, depending on the audience and what kind of agenda uh, the users want to argue for. So I make a uh, distinction between two broad types, and then there's the modern context, which is also a little bit different. Um, and I say that there's uh, especially important in the colonial period and during the period of the so-called Buddhist revival in Sri Lanka and in Myanmar. Um, the discourse is, uh, the authority of the discourse is derived from exogenous sources from outside the nation. So this is where they have to um, appeal to universalist criteria or to say that Buddhism is actually scientifically valid, uh, that it works for all people. And on this basis, you can assert that Buddhism is valid, that you can assert that this is a, a worthwhile identity. Um, this is how you fight against uh, missionary um, descriptions of what Buddhism is. Um, so that's the first version I'll look at. And for some of you who have studied, especially Sri Lankan, um, the Sri Lankan Buddhist revival, some of this uh, you will already know, some of the examples. Um, but I wanted to give a list of the type of discourses in Buddhist nationalism um, so you can see how they've changed. The second type that I that I define is the more endogenously derived discourse. So that's the one that is becomes more parochial, uh, becomes um, specified to certain ethnicities. Uh, so that's the type of that's the type of Buddhist nationalism that I think most people have in their head, typically when they hear the, the term. Um, that they say that Buddhism belongs uh, to the Sinhalese or to the Burmese, and that it's their special purview to protect, and they have a role in that. And then the third type is, um, it's ill-defined because it's being formulated as we speak, basically. But I think that um, globalization basically has forced a marriage of uh, different discourses in this way so that they are forced to take on exogenous and outside ways of justifying this. And I think this is especially important in um, the way they locate themselves in a global struggle against Islam so that they can say that Myanmar or Sri Lanka are just one small front on the global struggle against this uh, type of spread of uh, Islamic religion. And I even say that they see Islam itself as a type of globalization or a global vision that they can um, resist. So some of you who have studied about Sri Lanka will know about the Panadura controversy. Uh, since the 1840s, the missionaries had been holding <laughs> public debates with um, Buddhist uh, monks and so on in Sri Lanka. Um, but it was only since about the 1860s that the Buddhists started winning. So they started learning techniques about how to uh, debate these back and forth with the missionaries, how to justify their position in a convincing way. And that meant that they had to appeal to universalist criteria. Uh, at that time, it was like often rationalism uh, or science. 
um, or in the way that Buddhism could um, work to morally uplift society. So I have a quote here. This is the Reverend De Silva. So he's on the, he was a Wesleyan missionary and he was uh, a priest and he was on the side of the Christians. And this was his, one of his ways of criticizing uh, Buddhism. It's this quote. So he says, Hmm? It's not there. It's slow. Oh. Thank you. Yes, there we go. Okay. Um, so, the Reverend Silva, he says this in one part of the debate. And he's talking about Mahameru, which is um, uh, it's a mountain that is sort of the centerpiece of Buddhist cosmology. And he's saying, thus, if Mahameru did not exist, where then could all those worlds... Uh, referring to other heavenly dimensions in Buddhist cosmology, exist. They must all tumble down as a house whose foundation is rotten. Besides, if there's no Mahameru, what advantage is there in almsgiving or performing meritorious actions? So therefore, the whole morality and the moral vision of Buddhism rests on their cosmological vision. They are done with um, a view to be born in these worlds. What is the use of observing Silla, the precepts? They're observed to be born in the heavenly worlds. What's the use of observing jhana, which is meditative states? Uh, these abstruse meditations, as some priests at Matara observed until they got mad. All those things are useless. Mahameru of 84,000 jhanas in length and breadth and height must be placed on the earth, which means it has to exist in physical space. And if not, Buddhism must be rejected at once. There is no advantage to be derived in believing <coughs> in Buddhism. So he's saying if all the claims about Buddhist cosmology are not literally true, then all of its morality falls down uh, and there's no use, there's no advantage to be derived in believing in it. Um, now his debating partner, uh, Migatawati Gunanandana, uh, his response was to say that he actually doubted the Newtonian physics behind a, a spinning globe. He said like, well, we don't know if the whole globe is the right uh, scientific, is the scientific valid um, model of the world. I mean, so he's using science and he says, uh, if there's no Mahameru, then why do um, the compasses point north? There must be a great mass at the north to, to draw the compasses that way. Um, and so he says that we shouldn't reject the great word of Buddha on this unproved science of the globe, as he's put it. Uh, but basically, though, he's saying that he's defending it on scientific grounds as well. He's not just saying, well, this is our vision and that's a different vision. He's saying, no, it is scientifically valid. So the fact that his science is bogus isn't as important as that he's taking on that um, criteria. Now, the other point that I wish to say that goes throughout all of um, these uses of the discourse is that the discourses don't engage themselves. They're always used by people for certain purposes. Um, and I don't think that their use means that uh, they're not believed. I don't think that if people understand that these things uh, have a utility and that they can be deployed in certain ways means that they're not fully believed in. So there is the agency of the people using them as well as the discourse itself. And I think that they were consciously aware of the advantages of universalizing uh, religious discourse as a technique. So they may have believed it, um, I'm sure they did. They, would make, they might say that Buddhism is for all people and that it's not bound to any nation, but they're also consciously aware that this is a useful technique. And I think there's evidence of that in the same debate when he's criticizing the Christians for doing this. Uh, so uh, in one stage in the debate, uh, Gunanadana says, 
Christians, wherever they went, commenced propagating their religion by giving the object of their worship the name of a being already held in veneration by the nations amongst whom they intended to preach the gospel. For instance, in Calcutta, Christ was called the son of Ishwara, which would be seen from the words Ishwarana Sute Christe um, to occur in a Sanskrit stanza. This was done with the view of enlisting the sympathy of the Hindus, and in Ceylon, uh, Jehovah went by the name of Deyawan, I'm not very good at the pronunciation of this, uh, as this term existed amongst the Singhalese to denote gods in whom they believed. It would thus be seen that the Christians adapted themselves to different nations with the view of deceiving them. Uh, so this is a, a direct criticism of Christian universalization, basically, of the technique of saying, well, these can all represent um, Jesus. Uh, but they will also, at the same time, sort of ironically, then try to universalize Buddhism. You'd say, that, well, it's not even a religion, it just represents the highest forms of um, psychology or science or philosophy. Now, as part of the rationalist uh, universalist Buddhism, um, Colonel Olcott was mentioned in the last session, uh, and his arrival on the island basically helped with um, borrowing um, organizational technologies from the Protestant missionaries as a way of uh, mobilizing a religious group um, to uh, pursue an agenda. And the type of uh, Buddhism that uh, Olcott um, advocated for was this rationalist, uh, universalist type. Um, and his reason for that was that he had got a copy of the Panadura debate, and that was what attracted him to the island in the first place. And so he got in contact with Gunnadana. Um, Gunnadana actually translated some of um, uh, theosophical texts as well. So that's the quote there. This will be the Buddhist catechism will be familiar to a few of you, but you can see here the type of uh, Buddhism he's advocating, uh, which is against ritualism um, and so on, and devil dancing especially. Um, and just because we mentioned the Buddhist flag as well I just wanted to say the type of uh, vision that Olcott had when he um, designed, helped design the Buddhist flag um, he goes in his diaries he says <coughs> he was hoped to make a flag which could be adopted by all Buddhist nations as the universal symbol of their faith thus serving the same purpose as that of the cross for Christians it was a splendid idea, and I saw in a moment its far-reaching potentialities as an agent in that scheme of Buddhist, uh, Buddhistic uni unity, which I have clung to from the beginning of my connection with Buddhism. Now, the type of unity he's talking about here is not just community harmony or mobilizing them. He wants to reunite Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> this is like a, the kind of seismic change and um, the outrageous uh, ambition that he thought he could have. So I wanted to point that out as on the very um, polar opposite extreme of uh, parochial nationalist type of Buddhism, which is centered around specifically the Sinhalese or Burmese. And this became one of the strongest vehicles for the Buddhist revival in Sri Lanka. So this is the type of uh, Buddhist identity that they're pursuing. Um, now, as part of the conditions that make uh, this possible, um, Peter Vanderveer has described how in the separation of, uh, of the state in England from uh, the church in, in lots of ways was the 
conditions necessary for missionary groups to arise, volunteer organisations. Once the state doesn't have responsibility for maintaining religion, it's up to the willing among the citizenry to take that up. Um, after 1815 in Sri Lanka uh, and 1885 in uh, Myanmar, there is the king is removed. There's no state protection and uh, upkeep of Buddhist temporalities and the religion. Uh, so that opens up a space for people to um, maintain it themselves. They can find a role in that. And especially um, because they are deriving this from their discourse uh, exogenously, uh, the people who are best suited to do this are um, educated urban middle class, which is arising in the cities. So this is a, a type of religious mobility where they can take some authority over Buddhism. They can say that they actually have some control over their religious identity. And I wanted to point that out is that that's a type of aspiration for this um, identity making. Okay, so with parochial Buddhism, this is the type that is most known. Um, now, Anna Garika Dharmapala has been mentioned. He was Olcott's protege. He spoke at the 1893 World Parliament of Religions in Chicago, a paper called Buddhism and Christianity, where he uh, basically listed how similar they were, like how verses could uh, in the Bible fitted uh, Buddhist ones, um, and then gave a series of compliments to Buddhism from um, Orientalists like Max Muller and uh, Rhys Davids. But then by 1926, this is the type of thing he's publishing, where he says, ceremonial religion and rituals are only for the muddle-headed. We are not isolated on this earth, but are companions of angelic beings who have their habitations in starry realms. Analyze, and you will see that the creator gods of man-made religions have their habitations on the back of some mountain in some arid region, and the promulgators of religions were not philosophers or scientifically trained. Truth can fearlessly be declared in countries politically independent, and a subject race can produce no truth declarer because of the prison that awaits him. The Buddha enunciated the truth of human freedom to a people politically free when India was the beacon of light of the then civilized world. <coughs> now, it's, very, it's a muddled statement, but basically what he's saying is that Christianity is worse than, and Islam and uh, Judaism is worse than Buddhism because that was made by Semites uh, in some desert. <laughs> Whereas Buddhism was made by people politically free at the height of uh, civilization then. Um, and by someone who is implied here uh, scientific and philosophical rather than um, made up in the, on some mountain as Christianity was. Um, so this is, this is, as the discourse changed, this is what it uh, turns to. Hurry up. Um, I might have to skip uh, some of the slides to save time. But I want to say that, as people know about uh, nationalization, they redeploy symbols that already exist in the nation for a national identity. Uh, so the Mahavamsa is very useful amongst the, uh, the Sinhalese for this. Um, the Chronicles Vamsa literature in uh, Myanmar is also becomes important in this way. Um, so Glass Palace Chronicles is a history that links um, the Burmese people by blood with uh, the Sakyan clan so that they were related to the Buddha's own clan as well. Um, and that the Buddha comes to um, Myanmar and says, this is where my dharma will um, exist, so it needs to be protected, just as the, um, the Sinhalese do. 
Uh, and the what's important in this point is that the when you see the parochialization, when they withdraw their the universalist types of Buddhism and they withdraw it, there is also an expansion from within as well from um, things that are specific to uh, elements within Buddhism within these countries to become something that is expanded to represent the nation. The truth relic in in, in uh, Sri Lanka is like this. Dharmapala and Olcott actually fell out because uh, Olcott criticised the worship of the truth relic, saying this is a bigoted and ignorant thing. Um, but for Dharmapala, who maintains his rationalism, it becomes something that is um, represents the nation. Okay, so I've only got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to give some examples of uh, some of the modern uh, versions of nationalism. I think that there is a uh, one of the big changes is that uh, with the internet and with recent um, seismic changes in the politics in both Sri Lanka and in Myanmar. So in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. they've ended their civil war. This has allowed greater investment from overseas. Uh, the internet is almost universally accessible. Um, in Myanmar, uh, democratic transition, um, the withdrawal of total Tatmadaw rule um, has also opened them up to the world. But this has also opened up conditions again, almost as secularism first did, of opening uh, the market for competitive ideas of what um, Buddhism can be and who can represent it. So there is, uh, there is an incentive for people, for monks, to say, claim ownership of the religious identity and claim ownership of yeah. sasana defense or defending the religion. So that there's people that are like, well, I can um, rise up in, socially uh, in my rank, basically, and I can uh, command authority and become a political force if I take on this role. Uh, and some of the um, types of uh, discourse you get uh, is from, this is Ashen Tilaka Pavamsa from this book here, which is a bunch of sermons that uh, was compiled 2015. <coughs> um, and in this one, he gives a example of trying to use Buddhist uh, Buddhist morality to say um, those who are nationalists. So similar to using uh, Jataka tales, he's utilizing Buddhist morality saying that um, it's due to greed or craving that people give in to Muslim dominance. The Muslims are richer, they're able to seduce women by offering money and material support and they um, uh, and that's why they fall for it. So this is like one story he gives. Once there was a certain mother together with her grown-up daughter. The mother liked tea and Indian flatbread. The daughter had to go and buy the tea and um, flatbread at a tea shop owned by a foreign native, <coughs> Indian or Bangladesh native Muslim. And as some people know about uh, Myanmar, if you're a Muslim, that almost automatically makes you a foreigner. Uh, the Muslim man spoke sweetly and gave her an extra sheet of uh, naan bread. And after some time, the mother became attached to the Muslim man for getting an extra sheet of naan uh, every day. Later, she married her daughter to that Muslim. Is this event exchanging a daughter for a sheet of naan due to craving? And so it's a, a morality tale about how you could lose yourself to Muslims. The marriage of women to, of Buddhist women to Muslims is also uh, automatically assumed to be a loss for Buddhism as well. There's no 
um, inclusive idea. Uh, so I'll do this quite quickly and then I'll end. But basically, this quote here shows that there is an idea that Islam historically has spread across Asia and taken Buddhist countries. So Afghanistan, India, um, the Maldives, they sometimes say, Malaysia, Indonesia. Uh, lots of those countries are not Theravada Buddhist. Anyway, um, and I'm not sure how far their idea of sasana extends to Mahayana countries or to these countries from the past. But they're saying that Islam is an enemy of Buddhism as it spreads around the world. Um, so this is an historical process. It's one that everyone's facing um, in Christian countries, in Hindus are facing it. Uh, so that they are drawing on this um, international, this global discourse of Islam as a problem to justify uh, maintaining a hierarchy within um, within their countries, within Myanmar and Sri Lanka. And this is, uh, this quote is from a book called The Scourge of Poverty and Proselytism, which is about, is a Sri Lankan produced book. And I just wanted to say this to say their conscious use of these terms. Uh, Anti-conversion bills were banned. Uh, well, they weren't banned, they didn't pass um, parliament in Sri Lanka, even though the people have been trying. So this was his <coughs> tips for how they could perhaps Past these, um, uh, past these laws. He said, perhaps it may have been better if the bill was presented as a community harmony bill rather than an anti-conversion bill. Buddhist activists and politicians will have to focus on community rights, which could be described as Asian values. Um, such a bill will be able to address um, the concerns of an anti-conversion bill with clever secular sounding wordings by including right to protect one's religious heritage as a human right, which promotes community harmony. You see another marriage of international uh, legitimacy and domestic ones as well, and how there's a conscious use of trying to meld those for that purpose. Thank you.